Oh God, we ask that you would give life and light to your word. It's a perfect word. But we are imperfect people. And our weakness, our frailty, the lingering corruption of our sin, we ask that you would still work. Work in us and through us, in spite of us. Oh Lord, that we may be humble, contrite in spirit, and indeed even tremble at your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We live in one of the great times of science. I mean, what's taking place on the scientific front is genuinely shocking. The things that are being done, the things that are being thought of, the things they're figuring out to do. I mentioned this the other week to a group of folks that in Europe already, they've already figured out how to make an artificial womb. They're using it on sheep at the moment. They haven't tried it on humans yet, but it has a ridiculously high success rate. And they're excited about this uh, for a number of reasons in uh, the application for humans. So that way, uh, for infertility, it can be solved because you no longer need a mom at all to have a baby. You just need the two parts to be joined together. It's exciting for celebrities because they can have babies that are their own and not actually have to mess up their figure. It's particularly being embraced by the far left. It's, uh, It's an opportunity for boys to have babies in a way that's never been utilized before. It's an intriguing time to be alive as as so much science has advanced that it's really answering so many of the questions and even sadly so the way that it's being taught in some locations is actually diminishing the sense of mystery in the world. There's a downside to that is that sometimes when we come to passages like this one, we uh, tend to view it through only scientific eyes. And it's interesting to see how uh, so many of even the liberals struggle with passages like this because this chapter has so many things in it that we can't wrap our scientific minds around. What it means there is that we're wrong and science is wrong because obviously the scriptures are true and trustworthy. You remember where we are in Mark. He's begun the story of Jesus, the very beginning, the beginning of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then in staccato action paragraphs, he's boom, 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 boom. This is who Jesus is. Building to verse 14, just prior to our current section where he said, look, this is what's happening. Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. And what is the good news that he is proclaiming? The good news is that the time has been fulfilled. The Messiah is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is King Jesus' kingdom. Therefore, repent and believe in the good news. And from there, Mark takes us into the story and into the consequences of that kingdom, into the consequences of that proclamation. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does that even mean? Well, it means that King Jesus gets to behave like a king. And you have him here passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. 
and interacting with men and commanding their service the way that a king would. They're fishermen, they're commoners, ordinary fellas. They're not the best and the brightest. You've been in the church, you know the rest of the stories, you know that's certainly the truth. Jesus catches them fishing and says, come, follow me. I will make you become fishers of men. Again, an an idea that we have in some ways become so inoculated to because we've heard it so frequently. But if you paused for just a moment to think about what that command actually means, it's really intriguing. Here you have King Jesus introducing the gospel, introducing the kingdom of God. It's at hand now, and he interacts, and he has his first interaction after kind of being labeled as this king. And what does Mark put for us there? Jesus saying, oh, come follow me, I'll make you into holy worshipers. And he's going to do that. Or, come follow me, I will make you good people. Which he's going to do, that that is the consequence. Come follow me, you'll receive the Spirit of God. I think it's really interesting that his opening line is, come follow me and I will use you to gather the saints. I'll use you to become uh, your industry currently of gathering fish. No, instead, now you'll gather the saints. You'll gather people. And I think if we had kind of fresh eyes in the passage, uh, not the eyes of those who've lived in the text for so long, which is a good thing. We we don't want to turn that off. But it might give us a fresh sense of just being floored by this statement. Why on earth would King Jesus invite these men to follow him, command their service, and then say, oh yeah, by the way, what is the service I command you to? It's to be a gatherer of the people of God. To be fishermen. Only not fishing as men, but fishing for men. And it's, I think, in many ways, I guess, an even more intriguing thing because of how presumptuous it is. You come follow me, I will make you become something. I, I love that sort of idea. He will accomplish it. It will be done. And the thing that will be done is for you to be equipped to gather others in. It's a contagious thing. It's designed to gather others in. It's designed to be transmitted down the line. So they do. They drop what they're doing, they go on, he keeps walking, gathers others, and they go on, and it continues. And you think, man, this is an interesting way for the kingdom of God to show up. I mean, who is this king? That the type of service he demands from his servants is gathering other servants. And then Mark immediately kind of dumps us into an authority narrative. These next series of paragraphs just kind of reinforce 
This Jesus is who he says he is, and he has all authority to demand, to declare, to accomplish whatever he sees fit. Jesus and the four disciples head to Capernaum. I love this kind of little note about the ministry and the life of Jesus. They went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered, they go to worship. It's a flawed church. I mean, certainly, if ever there was a church that was kind of missing the point, this is it. They're waiting for the Messiah who's standing in front of them, and they haven't fully captured the picture. Should give us a good sense of hope and patience when maybe this church doesn't do the things that we fully enjoy. Jesus went to a church that really missed the picture sometimes. He goes in and begins teaching. This is interesting, too, because of how Mark treats the ministry of Jesus. The way that Mark treats it is intriguing because it's a ministry that he describes the actions, but one of the primary actions he describes is Jesus' teaching ministry. But he very rarely ever tells us the content. It's a really interesting sort of book. John, it's all of what Jesus said. Luke, it's a combination of the two. Mark, it's all action. Oh, yeah, by the way, Jesus was always teaching. So he introduces the theme. This king shows up, this Jesus. He is the one who is proclaiming the good news, and he he begins by teaching the truth. And it's not just any sort of teaching. His teaching comes with authority. And I love the little addendum. And not like the scribes. Part of how their teaching took place in this time is that there was a reading of the Scripture and then an explanation of the Scripture, but that explanation often included appeals to other teachers as authority. So if I want to make a good point to you, I would pull out my commentary and I would read what commentator X has written in the past. And if I was really smart, I might have some really buried quote from somebody really famous, and that would prove to you the, the quality of my argument. And interestingly, Jesus comes in and is no longer appealing to others for authority. He's appealing to himself. He teaches them in a way that is shocking to them. It's not coming in and is, again, we'll use the scientific perspective. He's not appealing to the facts. He's not appealing to the scientific method. He's declaring truth based upon his own authority. So much so that people notice immediately. This Jesus is different. We've not encountered anything like him. It's actually going to be so intriguing, so contrasting with what they're accustomed to that he's going to exercise a demon in a minute. What's the answer they're going to say? Look, it's teaching, the new teaching, as some sort of kind of magical incantation. His teaching is so different, so authoritative, that it shocks them. And then as it continues, the way the text reads... Mark dumps us from that, the proclamation, his authoritative proclamation of truth, to his authoritative interaction with evil. And immediately, it's a key word there, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now, if that's not a commentary on their condition, I'm not sure what is. That in the midst of their worship service, a possessed man shows up. 
Again, it's funny as you read kind of uh, more of the liberal commentators, the, the funny explanations that are had here to try to explain away demonic possession. I'll let you know a little secret very quickly. Just We've been doing this in Thursday Bible study. Angels are real, therefore demons are real, and possession is real as well. I don't recommend it. It's not good for you. Uh, it is being controlled from the inside out and probably the only thing I can think of that's actually worse than rape because it, it's actually spiritual. So from the inside, it's terrifying, terrible thing, terrible thing. And so here you have this interaction taking place between the Lord of life and one of the minions of death. And the minion of death has so controlled and dominated this man that he uses his body, uses his vocal cords to operate. Can you imagine what that feels like? To have something else forcing your voice to operate. And this evil being cries out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Clarifying as if anybody's unsure who he is. Have you come to destroy us? That's such an interesting question, isn't it? The demons are so fully aware of who he is. Their lead-off question is, why are you here? Secondly, have you come to kill us? Have you, have you come to unmake us? Have you come to destroy us? Is now the time that we're victims of your justice? Or is now the time where we get to receive all of those atrocities that you promised in Isaiah 66? Is now the time where we receive the wrath we deserve? It's interesting that it's the demon, it's the demon that's making the incredibly astute statement here (laughs) to know who he is, to understand a little bit more about what kind of kingdom he has. It's a victorious one. This is a matter of time. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. It's only a matter of time. And I like how Mark captures the interchange with just how short and truncated the answer is. There's no magic incantation. There's no ritual. There's no sort of, you know, rock, paper, scissors to see who's more powerful. Jesus just makes a statement. Be silent. Stop talking and come out. And he does. And so the unclean spirit does, convulsing the body, forcing the body to cry out, forcing the body to scream as it passes out of the body. And I love 27 again. I love how understated language reads at times. And they were all amazed. No joke. No joke. I mean, here Jesus is. He starts teaching in a way they've never seen before. And oh, yeah, by the way, there's a possessed guy in our midst. And it begs the question of, like, was that Ralph? Like, did they know him regularly? (laughs) Like, what had been his role in in activities there? Was he, like, the local guy, or is this some weirdo off the street? I'm not sure which one would actually be more disturbing. Weirdo off the street walks in, and then convulses, and demon comes out right there in their midst. That would have been a bit unnerving. Or if it's a dude that you know, it's your next-door neighbor. 
Luke. And they're all amazed. And they start questioning among themselves, what is this? No joke. Good question. Very good. A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. They clue in on the right thing. That this Jesus who shows up is not some sort of passive victim of circumstances. He's not some sort of kind of passive one of, oh, drat, he ended up a poor Jewish guy. Oh, doggone it. Carpenter has no money. Oh, no. Under the power of Rome for a time. You know, they, they get it, though they don't get it fully or rightly. That this one in their midst has power like they're not accustomed to seeing. His authority to speak and even evil spirits listen. And again, maybe this for our scientific brains is a little bit challenging sometimes, and maybe this one doesn't resonate quite as well. So we get another illustration following right on the heels, one that is a bit more understandable. And immediately he left the synagogue. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine that, that leaving there. I'm sure that's with much ado. Leaves the synagogue and enters the house of Simon, Andrew, and family. This is probably a fairly large family living together. We know there's at least four people in the home at this point. And Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately told her, so classic Mark again, happened real fast. Luke gives us more details. It's not just she has a fever. She has a ridiculously high fever. This is not just, oh, maybe that's a fever, maybe that's not. You're a little flush. You know, it's a 99 and a half. This is like 103.7. You know, 104, this is really high. This is life-threatening. This has the potential to be fatal or damaging. And you just get this amazing portrait. The Lord Jesus comes in. He takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and the fever leaves her. And she begins to serve them. And again, I would love to have watched what the social dynamics in that room are. Jesus walks in, grabs her by the hand, and starts helping her up. And they're like, what are you doing, man? Like, you don't, she's sick. She's got the flu. You've got to let her rest. She's fine. I assure you, she's not. No, she's fine. No, I assure you, she's not. No, she's fine. And the fever leaves, and then the next thing you know, the, the, the little story comes to an end where she's actually the one taking care of them. She's serving them. And what a portrait of the Lord's redeeming work. That where she was at death's door, moments later, she's serving the Messiah in her own home. His authority here extends over physical illness. And I, I enjoy how Mark tells it where he doesn't highlight any words. He highlights that he's so authoritative that he just grabs her and is like, it's time now. Doesn't have to say it. And the fever flees. That's an amazing concept to think of, that the Lord of life is so powerful that the fever flees him. And then 32, the story continues, kind of rounding it out. 
That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. It makes sense. I mean, you got a new guy on the scene who's supposedly able to help people. Again, remember, medicine is a bit sketchy at this point. I mean, this is still many hundreds of years before they thought it was a good idea to let leeches suck your blood to make you feel better. I mean, this is well before that. This is the era where I'm sure most medicine was just as fatal as the actual problem you were being treated for. And so when they have a new guy on the scene who's able to do anything, well, of course you try him. Maybe he's a fish oil salesman. Who cares? We're going to have a go. And we find out there's someone there. And so the whole town starts bringing their people. Which is interesting. Until you actually reread the verse and pay a little bit of attention to it. That evening at sundown, they bring Tim all who are sick. That's where we ended the verse, didn't we? Or oppressed by demons. Well, now, that's interesting. And his authority is exercised again all over all illness, over all evil. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Man, what a kickoff to ministry. He's so effective with his authoritative truth, his authoritative victory over evil and over sin. The whole town is gathered together. And so he spends the evening healing many who are sick with various diseases, casting out many demons. And in doing so, also tells the demons not to speak. Because he knows in their evil they will try to mess up his ministry. He silences them so he may accomplish his wishes. It's such an interesting kind of little staccato, just series of portraits of how authoritative God, the Son of God, is. Which I would say would probably be appropriate to then bring us full circle. He's displayed his authority in truth. He's displayed his authority over evil. He's displayed his authority over illness. He's displayed his authority over his people. And yet, interestingly, the way he defines his people at the beginning is as fishers of men. And I would be interested to know how many of us actually thought of ourselves as having this as our task today? I mean, you think about it. We have so many obligations. I, I have to be a father. I have to be a, an employee. I have to be a provider. I have to be a whatever else I have to be. And forget that calling. The way it starts. You're supposed to be a fisher of men. You're supposed to be a gatherer of the saints. If you're a servant in the king's kingdom, well, your task is to gather others at this point. And somewhere along the way, we kind of, I think, missed out on that a little bit sometimes. Where we forget that this one who has all authority in heaven and on earth begins his ministry 
interacting with the saints by telling them to be evangelists in some form or fashion. Maybe it might be appropriate for all of us to contemplate just a little bit how well that resonates with us or maybe how much it doesn't. Because that's what he said. And he's the boss because he's the king. As we've seen here and we'll continue to see over the next weeks as we look through the book, he is the one who is accomplishing salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we come in Jesus' name. We thank you that we're called to be fishers of men and how that's not reliant upon our power and authority because we're servants. But that we may rest in Christ's authority. That we may rest in his power. And we thank you for that key verb there that we will become that. Because Christ will accomplish it in us. Forgive us for our self-centeredness. Fill us with Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.